This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Don't say love if you don't need me. Don't send me roses on your behalf. Just take me down and walk through your river. Down in the middle and make it last. Holding on to you, holding on to me. Holding on tight to my lover's cross. Don't say it's useless and don't say forget. Star there, be my angel. You're on in your face on 3CR with James. On today's show, community lawyer Sam Elkin joins us. We also speak with Indigo Daya from the Victorian Mental Illness Awareness Council about the Victorian government's Mental Health System Royal Commission. And later, veteran activist Alison Thorne joins us to talk about the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. <laughs> Album Last Splash, the breeders there, Invisible Man, just after five past four, you're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, this week the Victorian government introduced a bill that would enable gender diverse folks to change their birth certificates and the gender on it. On the line we have community lawyer Sam Elkin. Sam, welcome back to In Your Face. Hi James, how you going? Sam, how would the bill improve the quality of life for gender diverse people in Victoria? Well, basically it would mean that people can change their birth certificates to their affirmed gender without having surgery to their reproductive organs. Most, yeah, many if not most trans and gender diverse people don't necessarily have those kind of surgeries or it may take many, many years for them to save up for those surgeries um, if they do want them. So it's a very restrictive system that the government has at the moment in terms of changing your recorded sex on your birth certificate. So this means that um, we're moving away from a medicalised model and that transgender diverse people can basically just tell the government who they are and then the government will record that and then we don't have to out ourselves unnecessarily as trans or gender diverse if we don't want to while going for jobs and things like that. So if passed, this legislation would have a huge impact on the community's mental health? Yeah, absolutely. It's really problematic at the moment that, you know, so many people's uh, documents don't align. So at the moment, you can do a lot of things. So you can get your passport changed, you can get your Vic Roads record changed and things like that. But at the end of the day, your records with birth, death and marriages is really the primary identification document. So it has incredibly important symbolic value, but it also is a very practical thing um, that will alleviate a lot of stress for people, particularly in an employment context, uh, you know, where you do sometimes have to provide your birth certificate, particularly if you're, um, you know, enlisting in the armed forces or, you know, doing a, a, a kind of big record check if you're going for a government job or something like that. How broad is the bill regarding what gender people can choose to put on their birth certificate insofar as its description is concerned? So people can self-nominate, my understanding is. Birth, death and marriages will have the ability to reject it if it's, you know, offensive or if it doesn't um, refer to a, you know, um, gender (laughs) of some kind. But, yeah, my understanding is that it is pretty expansive, so it's... It's much broader than what we've got at the moment. So non-binary people could put an X on their birth certificate, for example? Yeah, that's my understanding. The bill, of course, failed to pass in 2016. What's your reading of the political tea leaves regarding Um, the bill's (laughs) passage this time around? 
look, you, you've, you've got the wrong person on the phone about the political tea leaves. Um, I don't really know. I hear that things are looking really good and that Labor, you know, really want to push this through and there's a lot of independents like Fiona Patton and so on that are supportive of it. So, um, you know, we'll see what the Victorian Liberals do, whether they support the bill or not. But um, my understanding is it's looking good and um, there's going to be a sort of celebration of the trans and gender diverse community on the 14th of July at Parliament, which is on a Sunday that people can attend to, to show the government, you know, that they appreciate the, the proposed changes and that they're supportive of them. When news broke about this bill, what were some of the reactions that you received from members of Victoria's gender diverse community? Oh, I think that people are really excited about this. I mean, I think people are extremely disappointed that it failed by only one vote in 2016. That was a real opportunity for Victoria to be a leader on this stuff. Um, instead, we're catching up with Tasmania now, but, you know, better late than never. And, you know, I think people are, are really excited about this. But, you know, we've we've had so many frustrating and difficult things happen politically lately that... Um, you know, I and a lot of other people will, will believe it when we see it, I reckon. So activists must be organising some events to pressure state MPs to support this legislation. Are you aware of any any activities that are happening? I know that Transgender Victoria was organising for people to go and see their local MPs to um, explain to them why it was important for them. I'm not sure if that's moved on now that the bill's been announced or not, but Certainly Transgender Victoria would be a great place to start if you were wanting to get involved in actively campaigning for for this law reform. I've heard reports that activists may be planning an event outside Victoria's Parliament House. Have you heard those whispers? I've I've heard that there's going to be something on the 14th at Parliament House. I haven't heard the one outside Parliament House yet, but I'd be very keen to know more and um, be part of it. So have you had a chance to actually look at the legislation? And if so, do you have any concerns about it? Does it go far enough? Look, I think it looks pretty good. I was, when I originally, you know, heard that we were going to have some, some changes, I assumed that it was going to remain part of the medical model where, like, for example, at the moment with Australian Passports Office, you can change your recorded sex to X or um, to, to different sex, but you need to get a letter from um, your doctor. And I assumed that that was the case with this Victorian legislation, but it's actually not. So it's moving away from the medicalised model. So I'm really, really pleased about that. And it's definitely what the community has been asking for. So can't fault them on that. What was the tipping point, do you think, in terms of activism or just in terms of community attitudes that, that has led you know, the Victorian government and other governments around the world to move away from that medical model and basically trust trans people and gender diverse people to self-determine? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I guess I don't really know the answer because I'm not one of those decision makers. But um, I do think that there's been an explosion in representation of trans and gender diverse people. And I think that the general public is, is really getting the message now that that we're not freaks, we're not, like, crazy. We know what we want and we just need, like, the support of the government and from health practitioners to live our best lives. And I think that that message is seeping through, you know, through a combination of, like, political activism and, like, you know, really exciting cultural representation, you know, in films, TVs, books, things like that. I think all of that has made a difference and that things, at least in some part of the world, are going, are going right for us at the moment. Are there any shortfalls in this legislation regarding intersex rights and the self-determination of intersex people? I do think that the intersex community may have some concerns in relation to this proposed legislation and I would certainly encourage you and and other people to um, get in touch with Intersex Human Rights Australia to have a chat with them about what they say about it because I do feel it's important to hear from people most affected by the issue. Sam Elkin, always great to chat with you on 3CR. Thanks for your time this afternoon. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Sam is an LGBTIQ community lawyer, the only one in Victoria, and Sam works at Thorn Harbour Health and St Kilda Legal Service. You are on In Your Face on 3CR, and here's Nina Simone. Revolution. is louder than usual. Your organ is louder than it is at the gate. Just kind of leave it grooving by itself. Let it groove on its own thing. You know, then when it gets in it, then you can put in some fills. But don't do it at the beginning. It's holding it back. Can we start again?
Absolutely. It's a great program with the awesome Sally Golden at Avapan Noon Sundays here on 3CR. And uh, we had Nina Simone in there with Revolution. Well, the Victorian government has announced a royal commission into Victoria's mental health system. On the line, we have Indigo Daya from the Victorian Mental Illness Awareness Council. Indigo, welcome to 3CR. Oh, hello. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. Indigo, what are the royal commission's main terms of reference? Oh, I'll stick me with an easy question <laughs> to get started, James. <laughs> there, um, look, the, the terms of reference, in one way they're complicated, in another way they're not. In, in simple terms, they want to know what is it about the mental health system that's helping, what is it that's hurting, 
or not safe and how can they make it better. They've also asked about things like how could we or could we prevent mental health problems? What would that mean? And they've also asked are there particularly different needs that different parts of our community might have? So people from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander backgrounds or people who identify as LGBTIQ, yeah? So, um, and we know that there can be really different things that we need. So the problems with the system, I guess, transcend the fact that there's not enough beds and there's not enough money that's been put into mental health. What are some of the system failures that, that you're aware of that have led to this Royal Commission being called? Oh, look, well, we're the advocacy organisation for people who actually use mental health services, so you probably won't be surprised that we don't hear about lots of different issues. Um, they're not all explicit in the terms of reference, but I think they're still coming out through the processes. So the, the big things that we know about is that um, for people who use the public system, like the hospital-based system, um, we hear about things like seclusion and restraint and compulsory treatment being really traumatic experiences for lots of people. So you go in with um, you know, a whole lot of distress and maybe the service helps you, maybe they don't, but often those traumatic experiences can make things worse. But we know there's also a huge group in the community who just can't get help at all. <laughs> Um, and that's a whole other issue, and I think it's complicated for government to to process all these different messages when some people say we need more services and more hospital beds, but the people who are getting those hospital beds say, no, we don't want that. We had it, and it was awful. We want services in our community. We want peer support. We want access to talk about um, trauma with a counsellor rather than go to hospital and just get medication. Absolutely. So there seems that a cultural shift is required regarding how we approach mental health service provision. We've been strong advocates for a a cultural shift, absolutely, in mental health services. And listeners, oh, they may know or may not know, but the vast majority of our funding goes into paying for hospital beds and really expensive clinical systems for... Um, you know, about 70,000 people in our community, but there's actually hundreds of thousands of people in our community um, living with emotional and mental distress. And so if we could shift away from thinking good mental health comes out of hospitals, because I don't think that's true. I think good mental health comes out of communities that have eradicated violence and misogyny and stigma and discrimination and homophobia. Good mental health comes out of communities that are connected and where people look out for each other and where we can all access a supportive space where we feel welcome and people will listen to us. And it's kind of a dilemma, isn't it? Because society seems to be moving away from those uh, from those factors in lots of ways, especially when you know people are very isolated, as you said, and people just don't have those those familial or you know community connections that perhaps they once had. And perhaps the internet is increasing that isolation as well. So in some ways, improving that mental health cultural shift and attitude is kind of going against the grain. I think it can be. I, I... <laughs> Perhaps there's a temptation in in modern society to look for, you know, simpler solutions to things that, you know, we can get a a diagnosis and some medication and and that will fix big, complicated problems. And and for some people, that that might be all that's required. Um, You know, I'm certainly not critical of whatever helps, helps. You know, we should do that. But it's nowhere near enough. We've got a really um, increasingly disconnected community, I think. It feels like we're really connected all the time, but I'm not sure it's a a real, the the kind of connection we need for good mental and emotional health. (laughs) What do LGBTIQ community members that you advocate for tell you about the uh, state mental health system's responsiveness to LGBTIQ issues? Um, This might surprise you to hear, but there's a real lack of responsiveness. to people's particular needs, that we re- we have a pretty much a, a one-size-fits-all system. So whether we're, we're speaking about issues to do with sexual orientation, gender, culture, um, we don't have a lot of flexibility or adaptability in our system. Um, so it's, it's not a great system. It's very pressured. People are, are pushed through, the, um, through services very quickly. It's really all about... Um, 
what's the problem, what's the diagnosis, what's the treatment, how quickly can we discharge you? Whereas, you know, what we hear from people in distress is, I need someone to sit with me and really understand my distress in the context of my life, <laughs> which is big and complicated and takes time. Um, how did we get ourselves in this position where we have this kind of, you know, conveyor belt approach to mental health treatment? where people are just, you know, churned into a bed, basically churned out again, uh, often even before the medication's taken effect? Oh, gee, I, I couldn't answer that. Uh, I can answer that with an opinion, but I can't Please answer do. it. Yeah, with, with that knowing, you know, there's lots of different views about this. So some people will say that we're not putting enough money into the mental health system, and, and maybe that's true, but I'm not convinced by that because we, we put a lot of money you know, so it's, it's, I believe, you know, well over a billion dollars in Victoria. And sure, we could spend more money, but I don't think we spend the money on the right things. We spend the money on very, very expensive stuff. So I wonder if rather than it not being, so I don't think it's about not having enough money. I think it's maybe about an, um, an over-reliance on the health system to look after the mental and emotional well-being of our community. So someone asked me once, what would you, if you could only change one thing about the mental health system, what could you change? And I said I'd take it out of health because there's something for me around, um, and I'm not saying that health professions don't play a role at all. Don't, don't get me wrong. There's some fantastic health professions. But um, I don't think the health system owns our emotional well-being or has all of the wisdom for that. I think it sits right across communities and sometimes it's our best mate who has no particular skills at all who's the most important person in the world for our well-being yeah that person will just be with you through really tough times so I think we've over medicalized our distress and forgotten about those sort of social causative factors like you know the impacts of um, you know hate and violence and trauma and having safe communities and having welcoming spaces. Absolutely. Of course, uh, your organisation is conducting some workshops to assist people to put together submissions to the Mental Health Royal Commission. What can you tell us about those? Sure. So we're running workshops all around the state. Um, obviously, people don't have to come to them. You can do your, your submission on your own if you like to do one, but you're very welcome to join us. And what we're, what we're trying to do is, is provide a a space that's, that feels really safe and welcoming. So we, they're run by peer support workers, so people who've also lived with mental and emotional distress and are better, you know, in a, a sort of recovery space now, to talk over what matters to you um, so you don't have to do it on your own, to talk you through the process and all the different ways you can make a submission. Um, you can talk to other people at the workshop as well. So some people are finding that's really helpful to chew over ideas and... Um, and realise things like, you know, you don't have to tell them everything about your whole experience. It can be pretty, well, confronting um, and take a long time. But, you know, to help talk through what really matters to me, what do I want them to know? So those workshops are running about 20 of them across the state and people are welcome to just pop along um, or they can contact us to book in. Indigo Daya from the Victorian Mental Illness Awareness Council. Thank you so much for talking to me on 3CR. And it's great you're running the workshops. And I hope people rock along because it's all about empowerment, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Having your voice. And, and can I let people know the website if they want to find out more Please about the do. workshops? Sure. So it's Vimiac, um, that's V M I A C.org.au slash R C M H. That's Royal Commission Mental Health. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much, Indigo. Have a great weekend. Thanks a lot. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Indigo Daya there from the Victorian Mental Illness Awareness Council. It's just after 4.30. You are on In Your Face on 3CR. Up next, Alison Thorne to talk about Stonewall and uh, its 50th anniversary and an event that Radical Women is having called Rainbow Warriors Unite next Saturday here in Melbourne. But in the meantime, we've got some more music and this is You Am I. I got a kiss on the neck from morning cartoon. I pull it out the night. I just can't lose I'm grabbing my shoulder Turn out the night I like to smile at me pride The lady out I'm walking on the popcorn pump To get out the smoke Before her husband wakes up I ask to the asker That's the bag hands Just get on out of there Just get away from that 
from Melbourne, UMI, Get Up, it's our 435, you're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, on the 28th of June 1969, there was an uprising at the Stonewall Inn in New York City, and that sometimes controversially has been credited with the uh, rising and the evolution and the birth of the gay liberation movement in Western countries. In the studio, I'm very privileged to be joined by Alison Thorne, veteran activist and member of Radical Women. Alison, welcome back to 3CR. Oh, thank you, James. Describe to us what happened on that fateful night in 1969 in New York. Well, I think the thing that's really important to start with first is the bigger context, because what happened in New York when um, working class kids from Harlem, drag queens, butch dykes, trans women of colour rebelled and said no to yet another routine police raid on the bar where they hung out, the, the, the Stonewall Inn, that happened in a bigger context. And it happened in a bigger context of the 1960s, where there was the civil rights movement, there was women's liberation, there was the anti-Vietnam war movement, like it was an incredible time of social change and young people right across society were being impacted by that and that um, included gender diverse people and trans people who were also being impacted. What did it tell us about the suppression of the working class? Right, okay. That's a really interesting question. I think um, what it told us, what it tells us first of all, is that there's often a view of the working class. The working class as somehow being straight, white, male, blue-collar workers, guys in hard hats. But yet, you know, like when we look at um, who the working class is, the working class is a a rainbow diversity and, in fact, uh, when we bring together LGBTIQ people, women, people of colour, people with a disability, what we're talking about there is we're talking about a majority of the working class. And I think in that period, in the late 60s, the working class was really starting to roar and to demand liberation um, in, in in very uh, many ways. The 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 union movement um, in the United States at that time had um, become somewhat conservatized because of the, the the influence of the McCarthy era in the fifties. And um, where we saw the working class organising was in the streets, was around um, issues such as LGBTIQ rights and civil rights and women's liberation and against the war. To what extent do you think it's accurate, fair to say that what happened at Stonewall was the birth of the gay, modern-day gay liberation movement in Western countries? Or is that just a, a myth, a commercial construct, if you like? Well, I wouldn't call it a commercial construct. Um, how we see it in Radical Women is that uh, those events were a spark which changed the character of the movement. But it's not that... Um, there was no movement before that. There, you know, like there most certainly was a movement and um, not just in, in the United States, like there was a movement globally. Uh, lesbians and gay men had been uh, organising and very out and building a community in, in Weimar Republic, Germany before World War Two. And uh, in the United States, there were organisations such as the Mattachine Society, such as um, Daughters of Bilitis. But um, these organisations were advocating very much the idea of acceptance. And looking back now, in some ways, we can see 
the 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 politics of the pre-Stonewall movement was assimilationist. There's quite a, a, a famous photograph of a protest that took place outside the 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 White House, where the gay men wore very um, neat suits and ties, and the lesbians um, dressed in like very smart frocks um, with heels and stockings, and there was this sense in the pre-Stonewall movement of um, we, like we want to be accepted, we want to be seen to be just the same as everybody else. But the post-Stonewall movement took on a very, very different character with its call for liberation, with its call to come out. Uh, it um, it it, It was flagrantly different. And interestingly... Some of the same personalities were involved in both. So, for example, um, Harry Hay was a founder of the the Mattachine Society. He was a trade union activist. But after Stonewall, um, he was involved in Radical Fairies, where um, he was challenging the gender binary as we would, you know, like very much see it today. So some of the same personalities were involved pre and post, but the movement took on a different character. It became more militant. And given the name of this program is In Your Face, I think that that's a really good way to describe it. The movement became more in your face. Of course, you've been involved in the gay and lesbian liberation movement here in Melbourne since the 1970s. What would you regard as the pivotal moment regarding gay and lesbian activism in Victoria during the 70s? Hmm. Is there any event that jumps out? Or well, did we have to wait until HIV AIDS came along in the well, 80s? Well, you know, like in many ways, I think that's a, a hard question because everybody will have different pivotal moments. Um, But for me, um, a really pivotal event took place in 1979, and that was the Fifth National Homosexual Conference, which took place at the, the Universal Workshop in Fitzroy. And that was a very important Conference. A lot of important things came out of that conference, including the um, formation of Gay Community News, which uh, went on to become Outrage. Uh, I was involved in a young gays group that uh, formed at that conference. And to me, that was a a particularly pivotal event of the, the 70s. But I was somebody who got involved in 1979 and uh, with all the emphasis on the importance of 1978, the, you know, the year of the first Mardi Gras, I suppose if we look at things historically in Australia, that was pretty much a, a pivotal event, but I missed out by a year. Of course, you were very present in the early 1980s when the Melbourne gay and lesbian community was having to respond to HIV AIDS. And we had David Menendez on the show a couple of weeks Mm. ago talking Mm. about that time. What are your memories of that time that jump out? Well, um, I think one of the things that was most pressing to me was I really saw that time as a time of great political risk. And... It was a period of great political risk because we we had taken steps forward through gay liberation and we were making some progress. But um, with the arrival of HIV AIDS on the scene, that like that was something that was a potential political threat to the LGBTIQ community, as well as um, something that was obviously a a health threat. And I think that um, the way that the community rallied around and formed um, 
community organisations such as the Victorian AIDS Council um, or at the time the Victorian AIDS Action Committee to be able to speak with one united voice for the community was um, incredibly powerful. I know you're very modest, but of course the Victorian AIDS Council became Thorn Harbour Health. Uh, you're one of the people it's been named after. What was your reaction when the AIDS Council said to you, we want to call it Thorn Harbour? Well, I mean, that's a, a, a very hard one to answer, but it is very nice to have um, years of activism recognised and one of the things that I wanted to reflect on really was um, why me? And um, I like to think that it's because of my socialist feminist politics and I think that socialist feminism is a very unifying idea. Uh, Thorn Harbour Health really uh, wanted to brand itself as an organisation for the whole of the community. So to have um, someone, a woman, someone who'd been involved um, for many years in socialist feminist politics, in the Aboriginal movement, somebody who'd been like a very early advocate for for transgender rights, as well as somebody who had been involved in the in helping organize the community response to HIV AIDS right from the start, tick the boxes for um, what now has become Thorn Harbor Health in terms of linking back to the origins of the organisation to its roots, but also looking to the future in terms of Thorn Harbour Health being an organisation that is for the entire LGBTIQ community. Of course, you knew Keith Harbour, who the organisation is also named after. How would you describe Keith, especially his response to HIV and the activism that he undertook? Mm. Mm. Well, it was a real honour to have my name linked, um, like with the name of Keith Harbour, precisely because he was an openly HIV positive person who was an activist. You know, he was a founding member of um, ACT UP. And that, that, like, this is the, the, the kind of politics, um, that I also advocate that it is extremely important that we get out there, that we, that we organize, um, and that, that when necessary, we're prepared to put feet on the street and that we're prepared to build a movement. Of course, that's incredibly important at the moment with the rise of the far right uh, to commemorate Stonewall's 50th anniversary. Radical Women is holding an event in Melbourne, in Brunswick, uh, at the Solidarity Salon in Sydney Road, uh, not just to commemorate 50 years since Stonewall, but also to look at community organising in relation to the political challenges that we're currently facing. Uh, What are your concerns about the rise of the far right and what do you think we can do to stop them? Well, I, I think one of the things that is um, enormously important is that any gains we win, any reforms can always be repealed. They can always be taken away from us. And just look at the huge battle going on in the United States at the moment around um, women's reproductive rights, for an example. But even winning something like marriage equality, the far right is, you know, like out there, they're organising the like the the demonising um, that is happening of trans youth, you know, that like the call for for so called religious freedoms, um, and we're living in an increasingly polarised society, um, and this is something that's actually happening on a global scale. And all around the world, we're actually seeing um, 
far right groups organising, like as the the middle is shrinking, the capitalist economy uh, is struggling, people are hurting, and um, they, they they start looking round for for answers. And this is the kind of environment where scapegoating is something that that, that can um, take root and. It is taking root. Now, um, people may have seen uh, the news online that outright swastika-wearing neo-Nazis attacked the Detroit Pride March this month. Like, go figure. And they were actually escorted by the Detroit police like into that march. And that is the kind of climate that uh, we are living in. And it is so important as an LGBTIQ movement that we unite with all of the targets of the far right because it's not just the LGBTIQ community being targeted it's Muslims, it's trade unionists, it's feminists, it's um, First Nations people, um, people of colour. More broadly, there are a whole range of groups that are being targeted by the far right. And we need to bring together all of those groups into a broad but disciplined united front to take on and challenge the the far right because the time to stop them is now. The time to stop them is while they're actually small, before they're able to put down roots. Of course, the Liberal Party has undergone a civil war federally, I think, regarding ideology. Are you concerned that the, uh, the far right within the Liberal Party appears to have won? And uh, what do you think the implications of that are for the LGBTIQ community? You mentioned religious freedom before. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, what I think is that the far right definitely has parliamentary enablers and um, that like this ideology is something that we have to take on wherever it manifests itself, whether it's on the streets or whether it's... um, in the parliaments. What do you think Australia's federal election result tells us about Australian society at the moment? It's... Now, like, this is uh, really a very interesting question because I know that uh, after the federal election, there were a large number of people who were very, very disappointed. Um, But our view in Radical Women is uh, if we actually had a shortened Labor government today rather than a Scott Morrison government, we would still be having to organise. Um, we would still be um, having to put demands on government. And a lot of the reaction that I actually saw after the election there was like there was really not a huge amount of change in the voting patterns and i saw some interesting statistics that highlighted that what we're really dealing with is a system that's not really that democratic anyway if we take for example the fact that the greens got 10% of the votes in the lower house, but ended up with less than 1% of the seats, whereas the the Nationals and the Liberal National Party got 13% of the votes um, and ended up with 26% of the seats. What this tells us is that we don't really have um, a super democratic system uh, that, that we're, we're dealing with. And we need to be making demands such as proportional representation and not hang our hopes on electoral politics, 
we need to build our movement at the grassroots and strengthen ourselves. Of course, you've been involved with Radical Women for many years. Radical Women is hosting Rainbow Warriors Unite next Saturday in Brunswick. What are some of the changes that you've seen at Radical Women regarding uh, gender diversity? Well, um, Radical Women uh, has always been an organisation that um, welcomes all women who agree with um, our political program into our our ranks. Um, we have always been an organisation that has stood up for transgender rights. But it, like in terms of gender diversity, I think uh, one of the things that we are starting to see is um, much more questioning of the whole gender binary. And um, when we think about it, the early women's liberation movement um, did that as well. So it's nice to see the the questioning of rigid um, gender roles and the whole idea of gender fluidity firmly um, back on the agenda. And it's definitely uh, a very big issue for young feminists. And it's one um, that we that, that, that we welcome. And we really can see uh, the, the, the roots when we look at um, what, like where does trans oppression come from. We see those roots in the private property system, in the capitalist system, in the same way as we see the roots of women's oppression. Because, of course, you know, gender conformity is part of capitalist control, isn't it? Because if you make people conform to a gender, then you can kind of, you know, control their spending habits and their role in society. Uh, so really, it's all about capitalist oppression in some ways, isn't it? Ultimately, that seems to be the root of, of, of radical women's philosophy about a lot of things, would you say? Uh, like, a- absolutely. We are open, proud socialist feminists, and we fight for reforms in the here and now, um, but ultimately we are revolutionary feminists and we think that to get to achieve that vision of liberation that Sylvia Rivera, that Marsha P. Johnson, that the people who rioted 50 years ago at the Stonewall Inn who said no more police harassment. We think that to actually achieve that vision of liberation, it's going to be necessary uh, to build a different society, a socialist society, one that like, is not based on private profit. Alison, finally, give us the details for Rainbow Warriors Unite. Yes, um, the event, uh, Rainbow Warriors Unite, get energised by history and rebuild the resistance today is taking place on Saturday the 29th of June at Solidarity Salon. Solidarity Salon is at 580 Sydney Road, Brunswick. There's lunch served beforehand at 1.30 and the discussion will kick off at 2pm and we are definitely specifying that all genders are welcome. Alison Thorne, it's been a real treat having you in the studio. Thanks so much for joining us today on In Your Face. Thank you. It's three to five. Jacob's up next with uh, a Friday rave. I'm out of here, but taking us out is Patty Smith, and we'll catch you next week on In Your Face.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.